Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. Pretty excited today to have Dr. Rebecca Sharp as, as a guest with me. Uh, Rebecca will be talking to us all about uh, behavioral gerontology, which is a, kind of a really cool area that really doesn't get enough press. I, I, I think there was one uh, researcher in particular, which we might mention down the road, um, um, that did get some play a few years back, and there was some podcasts and some interviews and and, and, and some webinars that came out, and uh, but then, you know, I really haven't heard a whole lot since, and so I was really excited to find out that there's someone else doing some really great work in this area. So uh, once again, re- really excited to have uh, Dr. Sharp here. Rebecca, welcome to Behavior Speak. Oh, thank you. It's really nice to be here. Super. So uh, maybe just to get started, I, I always like to kind of go through, uh, kind of hear folks' kind of origin story and kind of how they got into the field and, and eventually kind of how you got to here. So maybe you could just tell us, you know, a, a bit about kind of how you, how you got into ABA and, and, and sort of the, that journey. And then what led you to sort of uh, specialize in, in, in the kind of gerontology area? Sure. I, I love the idea of an origin story. It makes me feel like a Marvel Avenger. Um, <laughs> fabulous. Uh, so I uh, was very fortunate in that I did my training at the University of Auckland in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, as you might pick from my accent. I'm a Kiwi. Mm-hmm. And the uh, University of Auckland has quite a strong um, behavioral representation at undergraduate level. And I loved it. I fell in love with the behavioral stuff. And I did an internship one year in the Pigeon Laboratory. And somebody, I think it was a PhD student at the time, said to me, you do know that you could do this stuff with people, right? And I was like, really? This is amazing. <laughs> How do I do this stuff? Uh, and then I found out that there was a master's program offered at the university that did any of the applied work. Uh, so I enrolled on that. I started doing uh, some work with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, like many of us start off our careers, uh, because that's our bread and butter. Um, I worked with kids and adults, because in Auckland, you do a couple of different placements in your training year, which is really cool. Um, And then during my PhD, my supervisor, um, Dr. Oliver Mudford, um, offered an opportunity to learn a little bit more about working with older adults, and in particular, older adults with dementia. And I let the opportunity. I thought it sounded fabulous. It was something a little different. And I was hooked. That was it. And and as I developed my own research interests and became an academic, uh, I decided this was where I really wanted to be and and the the people with whom I wanted to work. And it's been really, really good stuff. It's been so much fun. Really cool. I I will say that's the shortest origin story I've ever heard. (laughs) And so, and so when I, when I, but now this could just, could just be sort of the context of Auckland. When I interview folks from Canada, the U S for the most part, most of them have a quite a similar origin story in, in that, you know, they got out of high school and got into kind of behavior interventions. So, which would be sort of the equivalent of this registered behavior technician idea, um, uh, you know, working with on, on kind of home teams doing, you know, early intervention kind of work. And eventually that's, that led to this program. Did you not do any of that kind of work before you kind of started going to going to Auckland? I didn't, you know. So I suppose I got my start in a different way. For me, it was actually the science rather than the practice mm. that attracted me. 
And I guess I'm really lucky in that, you know, one of the really cool things about the University of Auckland is that it's one of the very few universities that has both an experimental operant laboratory and an applied program. And and so you've kind of got the best of both, which is fabulous. But yeah, I I certainly did do some early intensive behavioral intervention when I was pursuing my master's degree. I got Mm. some experience, but what got me was actually the science. And, And I wonder whether actually that's why one of the things I've always loved about behavior analysis is how broadly applicable it is. Um, and I was fascinated to almost go back to the original works, you know, Skinner's original stuff, where he talked quite clearly about how passionate he was and how he thought that the science of behavior could be and should be used for a range of, of human concerns and problems and and improving quality of life for a huge range of people. Uh, And so I've always seen the science of behavior like that, I guess. And in my professional career, I've been really lucky alongside my uh, academic work. I've worked clinically with a a huge range of populations, which I've I've loved. You know, I worked with people with traumatic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. I worked in recidivist youth offending. Not not that I was engaging in recidivist youth offending, but I worked with people who were. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, adults and children. And and so, again, for me, what I've always loved about the field is that once you understand the principles of behavior the world is your oyster with regard to where you work and how you apply that science and and whose life you might have an impact on and that's cool so i suppose my origin story in some ways is a bit odd and that it, it was the science rather than the practice that got me right on right on yeah that is that is a that is a different story and i think the other piece is again it, it, more so in north america is is there seems to be a lot of competition to get into these programs and so they often require you have that sort of experience kind of before coming in. So it was neat that you were able to just kind of, you know, just find, find it at the university and, and, and jump right in. So that's, that's, that's fun. Yeah. Would you call it behavioral gerontology? Is that sort of what the field's called? It is. It's, um, it was a name that was, well, it was coined a, a number of years ago now. So it's, it's funny in that, it's a field that we think of as being relatively new, but it's not, or a subfield, I suppose, of behavior analysis. It's It's been around really since all oh, the earliest examples of behavior analysis applied to older adults pop up in sort of the 70s, the early mm. 70s. There seemed to be a little run of it in the 80s and 90s, and then it sort of petered out a little bit for a while, and then there's been a, a resurgence more recently. But behavioral gerontology actually describes behavior analysis applied to aging generally, not necessarily people with dementia or major neurocognitive disorder, as it's now called, or people who experience aging that is outside the, the norm. It was actually the very early applications were actually for just older adults, uh, often in nursing homes, but people who did not necessarily have any kind of cognitive impairment or diagnosis, which is really interesting. And then in a little piece of work that we did where we had a look at the literature and what the literature currently shows, we found this mm-hmm. sort of reverse trend where the early studies were interested in older people more generally, uh, whereas the more modern behavioral gerontology studies have focused almost exclusively on people with dementia, um, with the odd exception here and there. So there's been a real shift in, I guess, what behavioral gerontology means. But technically, it's actually behavioral analysis for anybody who's aging, which I suppose, in some respects, is all of us, right? Um, Sure. And it depends on how you define aging. But Mm -hmm. for me, aging is changing behavior to respond to the different stimulus conditions that are associated with your chronological age. And -hmm. if you take that definition, then actually we're all aging all the time. Um, and so 
behavioural gerontology is actually sort of broader than people with dementia. But at the moment, that's that's where the focus seems to be. I really like that definition of aging because it can be really subjective as to sort of what that means. And lots of folks, you know, are like, you know, I know I have family members who are who who will constantly say, you know, I'm getting old, I'm getting old, and they're in their 70s. But then I have other family members who are in their 40s and say, I'm getting old, I'm getting old. And it really just depends on kind of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's about stimulus conditions, right? It's about the changes in your environment. So what kinds of things were they looking at? Because I, I, again, you're right, for me, all I've ever heard about is sort of the dementia, kind of Alzheimer's kind of research. And so what kinds of things were they looking at back in the day, in the the, the early days, that just related to aging? Um, The really early stuff looked at, um, it was usually topography based. So it was things like engagement and um, communication between residents of care homes, Mm. which was really neat, or getting people to engage with community activities. There was some early uh, early work around uh, continents, although that, that tended to who did have a diagnosis, but it was it was this idea of what they called behavioral plasticity. And, and I suppose up until that point, approaches to aging had been very much medical or pharmacological. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was sort of in the 70s that people said, well, actually, there's this idea that you can continue to learn behaviors and your repertoire continues to change regardless of your age. Mm. And that's why it's behavioral plasticity, right? Um, a little bit like um, neural plasticity. Uh, and I really like the way that that sort of is conceptualized. And, and then Skinner talked a little bit about prosthetic environments, what he called prosthetic environments. And it was about arranging your environment as you age to allow you to contact as much positive reinforcement as possible. That as you age, there are biological and environmental changes. For example, you might retire uh, and so your social life changes and your your sources of social reinforcement are different. As you age, your eyesight might deteriorate or hearing might change. Uh, And so he talked about you know, you can't necessarily change those things. It's part of aging. But what you can do is add prosthetics to the environment or augment your environment so that you can still maintain contact with the things that make you happy and have a good quality of life. You just have to do them in a, do those behaviors in a different way. And it's a really clever way of looking at the world. And Skinner was quite interested in this with regard to his own aging, um, which is why he wrote the book with Vaughan in 1983. It's called Enjoy Old Age. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's his perspectives. It's his thoughts on the age process from a behaviorist's view uh, and it's a lovely book it's only a little thin book and it's a dead easy read because it's written in layman's terms but it's this idea that actually you can still use behavior analysis to help you age and that you you can still you know contact the reinforcers that make you happy and so are, are folks because you said that now you know research has kind of moved towards the dementia area, which we're going to, you know, definitely dive into today. Are, are there folks out there that are still using behavior analysis for just sort of general changes in life when it comes to aging? Uh, there's the odd few. So for example, there's a paper by uh, Mark Dixon that was conducted, I think, around 2004-ish, uh, where he looked at gambling activities in a nursing home. And those those were people that did not have a diagnosis, but he was looking at whether you could uh, make people happier. So he used you know Green and Reed, uh, their team's conceptualization of how you might measure happiness objectively, which is by looking mm-hmm. at people's affect and, and worked out whether the provision of gambling activities would make people happier and, and improve quality of life. And, and, and he found that 
it does during the activity that people look really happy. But of course, there are no sort of long term, as you might expect, as mm. soon as that activity is no longer um, there or it finishes, then people people's affect goes back to being relatively neutral. So that there are some examples in the more modern literature like that, but they're not as common as the applications to people who do have a diagnosis of, of dementia or something similar. And so most of your work then is kind of in this dementia sort of area? Yeah, it has been. And and certainly what we found is there's an appetite for this, both with regard to dementia generally in that, you know, we know that there are very high numbers of people that will get a diagnosis of dementia in their lifetime. And we've got an aging population uh, and it's an area where lots of money is spent and lots of supports are needed. And so there's this sort of a push from uh, a research funding perspective. But we also know that there's a, a particular appetite, or there seems to be a particular appetite for behavioral approaches, um, and that there are other people who have suggested models or ways of conceptualizing people's behavior as they age that might be problematic. For example, there's the unmet needs model and there's the Newcastle model um, that came out of um, Newcastle here in the UK. Mm. Uh, And they're both behavioral in the the sense that they talk about environmental contingencies. They don't quite use that terminology, but they talk about triggers, you know, for us, discriminative stimuli or antecedents or motivating operations. Um, And they talk about behavior having a function and that people don't engage in behaviors because it's something about them as a person. They engage in behaviors because they serve a purpose, i.e. they meet an unmet need. Um, And although these these models don't necessarily seem to always acknowledge that they are um, using terminology or using concepts that have been around for a long, long time in behavior analysis, they what they do show is an appetite, I think, for um, a behavioral approach and certainly for a functional approach to looking at behavior, which is really, really exciting and a movement away from pharmacological or just exclusively pharmacological intervention. So these aren't behavior analysts that have come up with these models? No, they're not. Not to my understanding anyway. Um, they're not. They, they're psychologists or um, from other, or gerontology backgrounds. And, and you know, sometimes you sort of you look at things and you think, Yes, of course. Of course, behavior has a function. We've known this for a long, long time. Um, but it's it's really exciting that actually other professions are starting to to cotton onto this a little bit in in some respect, and that we've clearly got something to offer. You know, if you've got services that are very interested in, for example, the model or conceptualizing things based on unmet needs, then a behavior analyst has a very clear way into that service to say, actually, I can help with that. If that's how you're going to see behavior, guess what we do? Uh, mm. We do exactly what you're looking for. Surprise. <laughs> um, and that can be one of the hardest things to do as somebody who, if you're working in an area of behavior analysis that is less common, sometimes getting a foot in the door is the hardest part. But once you're in there and you demonstrate how effective you can be, you're away laughing. But trying to get somebody to employ you uh, right off the mm-hmm. bat can be really difficult um, it's because you're unlikely to find a job that says we're looking for a behavior analyst with a specialization in gerontology. You know, they might be looking for something like an activity coordinator, for example, or a support person or, or a behavior specialist or somebody who's, you, you sort of have to look beyond the job title and and be prepared to stick your neck out and take a slightly less obviously behavioral job, but make it behavioral once you're in that role. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. Yeah, because I, I, I often wonder about some of these sort of niche areas where folks are doing really cool research. And certainly as an academic, I think, you know, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not an academic, but it seems like it might almost be 
sort of easier for you folks to do this work because you're essentially offering to do it for free, right? Like in the, yeah. in, in the context of those studies that are being funded from somewhere else. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, it, it probably doesn't take much then for a nursing home to go, well, if you want to try, sure, we can't pay you, come on in. Um, but then to actually um, sort of shape that into a, a role in the company. Have you, have you ever sort of had to been able to kind of so you, you've done some done some studies and done some work with these folks. Have you ever been able to sort of say, okay, well, listen, if you want to keep seeing these results, hire a behavior analyst? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. We, we've sort of been able to hint at that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, it's a difficult one. And, and, and of course, one of the, the sort of awkward things about doing research is that sometimes, depending on what your particular research question is, mm -hmm. for example, if you're doing some work around functional analyses, experimental functional analyses, and run a functional analysis in a care home as part of your research, but an intervention is not part of your research, you end up in this sort of ethically gray area where you've mm. done a functional analysis and you said, you know, here's the functional behavior, good luck with that, bye. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but, but nor can you say, but let me stay on and do an intervention for you because you're not, that's not what you're there for um, and you get into some dicey areas with regard to being paid for your services and and what your relationship with the care home is as a researcher versus as a clinician um, and so that can be a little bit awkward actually uh, and something that uh, there's sort of no clear path forward with that one mm -hmm. uh, I mean ideally what would be lovely is to to get a practitioner in to be able to then pick up some of that work the way into somewhere is is through research first but certainly, you know, in speaking to students, sometimes students show a real interest in some of these um, sub areas of behavior analysis. But then I suppose it's a little bit like choice behavior, right? Where, that when you graduate with your master's degree, do you go for a job where it's clearly advertising for a behavior analyst um, mm -hmm. and is asking for the qualifications that you now have? Or do you go for a job that is perhaps less obviously behavioral, might pay a little bit less, doesn't have necessarily as um, as awesome a job title? Uh, you know, where, where are the reinforcers? And often the reinforcers might actually be taking that job where you know you're going to be called a behavior analyst, so your job title aligns al mm -hmm. with your qualifications. You're probably more likely to have supervision or to at least be working with other behavioral colleagues because we know that working independently as a behavior analyst particularly in a multidisciplinary team where you're the only behavior analyst is a big um, risk factor for things like burnout. Um, it can be really stressful uh, getting the right supervision if there are a few supervisors that are qualified or experienced in your niche field. So, so I can sort of see where actually at the moment we might be in a wee bit of a cycle where it's difficult to get people to start being clinicians in these, these other areas because the reinforcers actually lie elsewhere for for work and for job titles and for career progression and supervision yeah that's a really really interesting point you know i was, I was listening to there's a fella what's his name uh todd ward i don't know if you've heard that oh, name yeah. but yeah. he you know he's had some you know kind of well-known blogs and stuff out there he's recently left the field and is now working as um, i actually was going to get him on the podcast but then he got on another one um, just uh, he got on the uh, obehave podcast and just released an episode not that long ago talking about this exact thing he's he's now a a solar consultant like solar power consultant oh, interesting. Um, and he's completely moved into this realm but he's He's a BCBAD and he's still trying to apply those behavioral principles to consulting in solar energy. And his sort of goal, he's, he's, he's kind of really wants, he's really trying to sort of encourage 
other behavior analysts. He's encouraging behavior analysts to leave the field of autism. Um, right. And he says, there's a lot of you doing this, you know, but there's a lot of other places we could go. And then you can come back to our conferences and talk about how you're applying, you know, your skills in those other in those other areas. But of course, as you say, you know, the reinforcement that might not be there, the pay might not be there, those, those sorts of things. And so, you know, uh, the motivation to get there, th- that kind of leads me to kind of another question, which I don't know if I, I should ask because it might... Not, might not might not help you down the road, but um, um, is um, and I've always kind of wondered this, you know, not not being an academic myself. Why are folks funding this kind of research if the field doesn't want you, isn't looking for you to work there? Do you know what I mean? So, like, why why would we fund you to study behavior analysis and how it can improve the lives of people with dementia in a nursing home if, in the end, the people in the nursing home aren't looking for a behavior analyst. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com. The first secret word is dementia. That's a really, really interesting question, actually. So I suppose it... I mean, it highlights the the problem that we've got at the moment, which is exactly that, that, you know, we, the research very strongly suggests that behavioral approaches are incredibly useful for improving quality of life in older adults, whether they have a diagnosis or not, and whether you're looking at decreasing behavior or skills or maintaining skills or whatever, but not necessarily reflected in practice. And I suspect, I mean, this is this is just an opinion, but I do suspect that it's probably linked to the contextual factors in each country in which you're working. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I suppose what the competition is. So, for example, the sorts of roles that a behavior analyst might um, be employed in in older adult services might be a psychology job. Mm. And those might be, for example, jobs that clinical psychologists take. And and we know that sometimes organizations might advertise for a clinical psychologist, but actually what they might want is a behavior analyst, but if they've never had one before, mm-hmm. they don't know to ask for one. And and that's that's sort of that's where that foot in the door, you know, it, sometimes all it takes is that one person to get the foot in the door in an organization, even at a lower level. And then when the next time round it comes comes around where they want to employ someone else, they can sort of that organization can turn around and say, You're cool. What what are you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Why yeah. what do you do? And and that's where the opportunity is for, for us to say, well actually we're behavior analysts and this is this is the kind of training that we need and this is the kind of thing that we learn and this is the kind of thing that we do. Um, and then only then will those services sort of know what to look for. But I guess in some ways it's it's almost like advertising at the moment. I don't know whether services know necessarily that we exist as a profession uh, outside of the subfields that we're more commonly associated with. And so in my experience here in the UK, is it, that's exactly how I got into being able to develop some really cool opportunities for some work and some research was, was that I had a, a corridor conversation with a clinical psychologist at work who is a clinician, but also an academic part-time. Mm-hmm. And um, we just got chatting one day over a cup of coffee um, and realized that we had a common interest in working with older adults. And that actually developed into some collaborative working and a foot in the door with regard to the local health board. But if I hadn't mm. had that conversation with her, I don't think I ever would have made that inroad by myself. I needed that in, I needed that connection. And those can be hard to come by. I mean, they're, they're serendipitous, right? And and yeah. maybe that's maybe that's the problem in that you've got to be prepared to get a lot of doors shut in your face or a lot of no's or having to get that 
foot in the door initially. But I imagine the context differs depending on the country and with regard to who does provide psychosocial interventions for people with dementia. And that probably varies based on where you are. It probably varies even within a country based on the kind of service that you're talking about or even the the regional area. You know, is it people who, uh, is it occupational therapists? Is it speech language therapists? Is it psychologists? Is it a bit of both? It probably varies greatly. And so maybe the answer is to do, to start to become a clinician in this field is to gain an understanding of of the context of, of, you know, how those services work in your area and how you might then be able to infiltrate, I guess. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's interesting you, you talk about sort of just meeting people in the hallway. That, that's a story I've heard a few times about, you know, folks just kind of meeting in the hallway and suddenly the whole direction of, of their research changes entirely and becomes a, a completely different package. I, I know my supervisor, I think he ran into, he ran into a, a psychologist in the hall, a clinical psychologist in the hallway. And the next thing you know, you know, he, there, he's, he's adding all of these, um, you know, sorts of pieces from uh, like family systems theory and, 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 med- and, and mindfulness and all these other pieces to his research that he normally didn't have just because he kind of met this guy in the hallway. And it makes me think, you know, you know, and, and I hear other people talking about sort of, you know, we should try to publish in journals that aren't, you know, our own and, you know, publish in other folks' journals and other, other fields' journals. But, you know, that's not always, um, you know, easier for folks, especially if you're not a researcher. And so maybe another angle is to kind of maybe try to go to a conference, you know, that's, that's more related to go to a gerontology kind of related conference and start meeting people. And then, then every hallway is full of folks that are kind of interested in what you want to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly what I've, um, what I've found that's been really lovely about gerontology particularly is that because it's a relatively uncommon subfield in behavior analysis, it doesn't seem to carry any stigma and, and people seem to be quite genuinely interested when they say, you know, what do you do and what are you? There's no, oh, I've heard about that horrible ABA stuff. It, it you mm-hmm. know, you guys do X, Y, and Z. And so in some ways, I mean, there is a little bit of that, but, but certainly nowhere near as, as bad as you might cop it with, when working, um, in autism, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's been quite nice, actually, is that, you know, it, people seem to be quite genuinely interested in finding out what we do and, and how we do it. Um, and they come with fewer concept or misconceptions or predetermined. Mm-hmm ideas about what we are and what we aren't, which is, is actually, it's a one less barrier to worry about, right? It's great. Well, that's really interesting. And, 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 and I know there are some folks out there listening right now that, and this is a whole other topic, which we're not going to get into today, but are, are actually, have actually told me that they're leaving the field solely because of, you know, a, a lot of that, that narrative around, you know, um, uh, around you know ABA being abusive and those sorts of things and, and the right. history of ABA and so to know you know that there are the silver lining might be that this might now bring behavior analysts to sort of other fields yeah come hang out with us in gerontology yeah exactly I uh you know it's, it's interesting to talk about sort of the, fighting it in with a different job I I switched kind of my, my wife and I you know, and I'm thinking about this based on in the context of everything you're saying and, and, and us aging as well and kind of rearranging our environment to kind of come in closer contact to reinforcement and those sorts of things. And so, you know, a few years back, we decided to leave the city and go, go live on an island in, in the Gulf um, uh, on the waterfront and kind of live that sort of quiet, peaceful island life um, away from everything and, and just kind of living in heaven and, and trying to find work that maybe was you know, a little different, uh, something we, we hadn't done before. And so I really tried to get into um, 
the uh, what do they call it? The uh, the long term care kind of health unit, right. where they do have recreation therapy. Um, and I thought, you know, you know, an activity coordinator, a rec, and they had both those roles. Actually, that's kind of what triggered the thought. Seemed a lot like what I was doing in you know in the day programs for the adults with IDD and that sort of thing. And so it seemed like a really good fit. And so when it, but when I went to apply. They were very specific that you had to have the specific Bachelor of Rec Therapy degree, and there was no other way to get that role. And, uh, you know, otherwise, because I, and I was I was sort of pumped to kind of come in and try to apply behavior analytic principles in kind of in that setting. But they also have their kind of, you know, unique requirements f- for those roles. And so you almost kind of have to go in even lower, like frontline, you know, healthcare worker or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've experienced very similar, um, you know, I remember some time ago applying for a position in a, it was a residential unit for people with dementia and the job advert said clinical psychologist. And I thought, eh, give it a go. And, you know, when I read the job description, there was nothing on there that I thought that's outside my scope of competency. Wouldn't even interview me. They weren't interested because they, they wanted a clinical psychologist. And, and I think it's really funny because we think, we think so differently, I suppose, as behavioral analysts, right? It's, for me, it's sort of like the difference between topography and function, that they are a little bit obsessed with topography, right? There has to be the person that's got this degree or has right. this title. Whereas we look at function, you know, we look at a job description and say, that's a list of behaviors. Are there any behaviors on that list that I can't do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the answer is no, then hey, throw your hat in the ring. But sometimes, you do face these barriers where actually there's the sort of a this sort of weird obsession with no it has to be somebody with this particular degree or with rather than looking at somebody's skills and that's that's so incongruent with the behavior analytic view of the world right it's got to mm-hmm. be about some repertoire not about what they they're called right it's got to be but yeah it's a it's a bummer when you're faced with yeah it's just interesting kind of barriers that are kind of put in front of you um when you probably in the in the job interview could answer all the questions really well and 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 may, maybe even score higher than that that rec therapist. Not to not to just rec therapists. I have colleagues that are rec therapists. They do amazing work. In fact, my wife has a degree in rec therapy, so I know. Yeah, I, I know. I know kind of um, what uh, what's involved there. But um, but yeah, it, it is it is it is too bad. So it, it seems like the two ways to kind of get in are either start at the bottom and work your way up or, or look for people in the hallway Uh, (laughs) and see how it goes. So kind of getting into kind of the work you're doing now, before we kind of maybe talk about some of the the research you're doing and the papers you've been working on, maybe you could just kind of give us an idea of, dementia is such a broad word. I don't really know what it means. And it seems like that there's like lots of subtypes and lots of different things. I used to think, I thought dementia and Alzheimer's were the same thing, but maybe they're not. And so maybe you could just kind of help us understand what dementia is. Sure, sure. So dementia is this umbrella term, and it, and it refers to a range of things. And it, and actually, it's not even called dementia anymore. It's now called major neurocognitive disorder, uh, based on the latest DSM. And what it is, is an umbrella term for a whole bunch of different things. With regard to, I'll probably keep saying dementia, because I think, to be honest, I think it's a more useful term. You know, people still refer to it as dementia, even though major neurocognitive disorder, which is a bit of a mouthful, is the current correct term. Um, but I think major neurocognitive disorder for me is a weak but on the vague side. So I'm going to stick with dementia. So dementia is often, as you say, synonymous with Alzheimer's, but actually in reality, Alzheimer's is a subtype. Um, And it's the one that people are the most familiar with because it's the most commonly diagnosed. And it's the one that people associate with memory loss. Uh, But what's really interesting is that other types of memory loss may happen, but it's not necessarily the most prevalent behavioral change. Mm. 
which is really, really interesting. And, and so there is quite a bit of variability. Sort of in a nutshell, we know that people with the same diagnosis can experience completely different changes in their repertoire. So just like anything else, diagnosis, is, you know, any other field in behavior analysis, diagnosis is, is useful to know, and it might give us an idea of what maybe to expect with somebody's repertoire. But certainly, you know, it's all got to be individualized because people's experiences of dementia are so variable, so, so mm. variable. There is a sort of gray zone between, I guess, aging where somebody ages for want of a better word, normally, um, with regard to no abnormal neurological changes and then major neurocognitive disorder. So sort of things like mild cognitive impairment that sort of sits in this no man's land in between. And there's not an awful lot of agreement in the field about what that means or looks like or mm -hmm. diagnosis. And there are whole different ways of, of uh, different terms used to describe that. Different dementias will come with sort of different expected progressions. So, for example, if you have a dementia that's linked to um, stroke or multi-infarct, then you might find a stepwise progression where somebody, if they have another neurological event, suddenly loses a bunch of skills all in one go. They, you know, there's like this kind of stepwise, quite abrupt change in their repertoire. Mm. Whereas things like Alzheimer's, you might you might expect a more progressive decline in, in repertoire. But again, it's so individualized, it's very difficult to make broad claims about, about sort of what dementia is for different people. It's so, so different. Um, and that's where I think behavior analysis is particularly strong, right? And that uh, the fact that we use repeated measures and small end design, uh, these are all very, very congruent with working with a group of people for whom their experience of their repertoire changes is going to be so, so different. You know, I think we're in a perfect place to be able to work with people with dementia because of the such extreme variability in how people experience it. Uh, and the other really interesting thing about dementia that I think is really cool, and it's often as a clinician, one of the first conversations I have to have with people is that just because somebody has dementia doesn't mean that they can't learn, right? Um, mm. That contingencies still, still work. There are operant contingencies that still govern behavior and people can actually relearn skills even when they've lost them. Uh, and yeah, it's true that perhaps for some people, you might never be able to move away from having to have permanent prompts in the environment, for example. Um, mm. But there's certainly no reason to think that people can't continue to learn and people's repertoires can't be can't be targeted. You know, we, we can do some really cool work with, with helping people maintain skills, learn new skills to make up for skills that have been lost. You know, for example, there's the work that was done around using the picture exchange communication program for people who'd lost their ability to um, communicate traditionally in, in um, more conventional ways, such as using speech. Mm. Uh, and so that's a good example of teaching somebody a new behavior to make up for a behavior that has fallen out of their repertoire. Mm -hmm. um, you might teach somebody how to use medical devices or um, you know, things in the shower to help people not fall over or modified toilets or so on. So also new behaviors like that. But the, certainly the evidence is very strong that people, even people whose dementia is, has progressed relatively far, you know, can still learn because learning is changing your behavior based on environmental contingencies. Right. And, and so that's often something that is a misconception, I think, and, and for lay people that, you know, people will say things like, oh, but they've got dementia. They're just going to get worse anyway. Leave them alone. And you think, well, no, <laughs> yes and no. You know, yes, it's true we can't halt the progression, but we certainly can do things to help people retain independent skills and to retain quality of life. Is there, is there, there's obviously stuff happening in the brain 
went in dementia? Like, what what's going on? Like, is 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 it that like brain cells are deteriorating? Like, what what do you know? Do folks do we do we know what's happening in the brain that's sort of causing these changes? Well, this is the so this is the, an area of behavioral gerontology that I think is particularly fascinating is that interaction, uh, and that from a medical perspective, I imagine that, and and I I don't know because I, I'll be honest, it's not my my specialty with regard mm-hmm. to the neurological stuff, but sure. I, I imagine that there's that there's some evidence where they understand sort of the neurological mechanism. What we don't know an awful lot about at the moment is the behavioral mechanism. So what I think about as um, I guess what I call operant limits. So what is the point at which neurological changes mean that operant contingencies no longer work for one to mm. the So to what degree does there have to be something biological or physiological that has shifted enough that somebody's learning is impaired? And that's at the moment where there's a massive gap in our literature and Oh, the opportunities are amazing. I mean, you could do some amazing work looking at things like that. The, there are some studies. So, for example, there has been some work looking at people's sensitivity to reinforcement schedules. You know, can people discriminate changes in reinforcement schedules and so on and so forth? And for example, we know that matching to sample and demonstrating equivalence between stimuli seems to be something that is impaired quite quickly in people with dementia. Um mm. There's a lovely paper by Gallagher and Keenan who are based um, in Ireland uh, and they showed that the mini mental state examination, which is a it's a cognitive test, it's not behavioral, um, but it's often used as sort of a, a snap uh, measurement of somebody's cognitive function. And you can pass that. It's all based on vocal verbal behavior, which is problematic in that if you've got deficits in your vocal verbal behavior, then you probably get an artificially low score on this test because you're expected to answer vocally. And if you can't do that, then, and we know that vocal behavior and verbal behavior are not the same thing, right? That somebody mm-hmm. can have verbal behavior without being vocal. But the, the opposite is also true in that you can answer these questions relatively well and so come out on the test as, as not having any impairments. But what they found is that they, um, when they did equivalence work, uh, that people demonstrated deficits in equivalence learning that were not picked up by the mini mental state examination. Uh, and so mm. there, there's a, there is some work like that looking at ways that we might start to get at those operant limits and how the aging process neurologically interacts with the environmental behavioral stuff. Um, but there's certainly a, a gap at the moment. There are very few, certainly to my knowledge, uh, research papers on on that kind of translational stuff, you know, that's neither neither mm. experimental nor applied, but that lovely in-betweeny bit, which I think is the most interesting stuff ever, where you try and marry the two up and you try and get get at those behavioral mechanisms. Uh, so there's a huge opportunity there. It's low-hanging fruit to some degree. Totally. So the idea of this operant limit, I've never heard of that 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 idea like that. Is that is are, are you saying that it's sort of if we find out where that is based on, you know, and kind of connected to the neurological sort of deterioration or whatever, that that's the point where now for sure this person's not going to be able to learn what we're going to teach? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's most extreme, definitely. Um, and what it might do before that point is help us to choose the kinds of interventions or choose the things that we might target. Um, So, for example, what we think is going on at the moment, and there's some emerging evidence for, is that there seems to be something with stimulus control in particular with people Mm. with dementia and that the ability to discriminate stimuli seems to be something that is particularly problematic and seems to almost, I mean, I think 
you could make an argument, and sometimes I, the more I think about this, the more I think it might be right, and that almost every behavioral problem is a stimulus control problem, right? And that I can think of very few topographies of behavior that are problematic based on topography alone. Mm-hmm. With the example of maybe extreme self-injury um, or extreme aggression, but even then, you know, if you're talking about punching someone in the face, that's completely appropriate if you're in a boxing match, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so it's always about context. And as soon as you start talking about context, you're talking about stimulus control. Uh, and so for people with dementia in, in particular, sometimes we see behaviors that topographically aren't really problematic. They just occur in the wrong stimulus conditions. Mm. Uh, and again, Gallagher and Keenan do a lovely job of, of describing some of these, but one of their examples, um, they talk about you know, the, the person that urinates in the plant pot in the corner. Mm. We, we want people to pee, right? I mean, the, the, the topography is not problematic, but we'd rather they didn't do it in the plant pot. Sure. Um, when you start to think this through, well, actually, what it is, it, it, is it about a plant pot? Well, it's round and it's white. And it sits in the corner. It kind of looks like a toilet. So yep. you could have a problem there where you've got somebody engaging in behavior based on faulty stimulus control, Amazing. Um, which is so interesting, right? And and I think if we if we can get a good understanding on stimulus control deficits and how those interact in dementia, because it seems to be it seems to be the thing uh, in dementia that seems to be problematic, then we might be able to then start to develop some really neat interventions and assessments that are specific to older adults. For example, another cool example is that, you know, we we did some work with preference assessments, which, you know, are very well empirically supported. They're a great tool. They work beautifully. Uh, and sort of naively, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, let's do some preference assessment work with older adults. That'd be great. Sure. You know, let's work out some preferences. We can then maybe use those stimuli for environmental enrichment, or we can, you know, expand on that, that research. And we found that actually preference assessments didn't always work. They sometimes went down like a lead balloon. And it was only when we started thinking about stimulus control that we realized why that was. And so, for example, you know, think about the scenario objectively. If you show up to somebody's home and there are two of you and you're in smart casual wear and you come with a bag of stuff and then you sit in front of that person and you say, hi, um, you know, I'm going to show you some things and you can pick whatever you like. Mm. Well, we found that people looked at us rather suspiciously um, and they would say things like, well, how much do you want for it? Uh Or I don't have my purse on me or why are you here? And actually people thought that we were like Tupperware salespeople. Yeah, um, exactly. Because that's what we looked like. Right. And, And if you think about, you know, an adult with a typical and long learning history, there is no other situation as a, as an adult where strangers come into your home and offer you items for nothing. It's weird. Totally. Totally is. Yes. Um, And and so for us, preference assessments felt awkward and strange and we had to think of ways to try and adapt them. And and I don't know whether we ever really came up with a, a, you know, a single way that was the best way to do that. I think you probably have to read the the context a little bit, but, but yeah, or, you know, with food items, if we had things like packets of biscuits well you know we would often do these things in the lounge or you know in the common areas of a, of a home because often care homes don't have a room that you can take somebody into that's private you know like you might find for example in a school and also you don't necessarily want to do that because it feels weird and awkward you know to take somebody into a room by themselves so you do it in the lounge but of course if you're sitting in your lounge and you've got 
people, you've got visitors. It's very, certainly for us here, you, you wouldn't sit and eat a, a packet of biscuits by yourself. That's that's rude, right? Mm-hmm. You would offer the packet of biscuits around to everybody who's in your home as a visitor. Uh, and so the act of simply asking somebody to make a choice was often met with suspicion and you know, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly have that biscuit. Please offer it round first. And so we, we we did things like we would make sure we had enough food if we were doing sort of, you know, uh, treat preference assessments around what people would really like is like, do they prefer biscuits or do they prefer scones and jam or, you know, nice cups of tea or whatever. We would make sure that we had enough to offer everybody in the room just to make it more akin to right, right. a typical social situation. Um, and there are there are very few other populations with whom behavioralists work that I can think of that you might encounter a situation like that. You know, it's 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 weird. It's odd. Uh, and it, it impeded running something that actually, from a kind of clinical perspective, is quite a straightforward assessment. You know, clinical a clinical preference assessment is relatively straightforward to run. Yeah, yeah, Not necessarily yeah. with people with dementia. That's so cool. I mean, because, yeah, you, you, you think about and you think about that population. I mean, these are folks that have had, you know, more experiences than any of us. Their, their learning history is huge. They're... Uh, a lot of them are, are quite wise and and polite and respectful and you know they, they prior to the sort of the, the dementia hitting they had you know all of the all of the social skills that we that we wish everyone else had when we try to teach the children um, and so to kind of come into a uh, you know a situation and 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 put this sort of novel these these this kind of novel this novel you know uh, preference assessment in place and they're like no no I want to share I want I want to I want I, I this is rude um what are you doing here and this is, people don't do this you know you know maybe 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 things would have been better off as as you know just just a big buffet table for the whole house you know and see what yeah. people pick that sort of thing or whatever well, yeah, yeah I mean a free offering right I mean a free yeah, offering yeah. preference assessment would be and that's something that I don't think I've seen it. Actually, I might be wrong. Somebody might have done it, but that's sort of not reflected in our literature yet. And mm. so there's a lovely, again, low-hanging fruit to some degree. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lovely opportunity there. You know, is it more socially acceptable? And, and certainly the research on the social acceptability of interventions. You know, if you think back to Wolf 1978, you know, right from that point, we, you know, there's been this call for us to consider the social acceptability of the goals that we pick for behavior change, the mm. methods that we use to change them, uh, and then the outcomes of, of our interventions. And and actually at the moment, again, there's a lovely gap in the in the literature there for somebody to fill around the social acceptability of some of these methods that are very commonly used with other um, uh, other subfields in behavior analysis, but applied to adults. Because then we might find that something that is socially acceptable for children, for example, in a school setting is completely uh, unacceptable for people in a care home. The second secret word is Newcastle. Mm-hmm. And that really kind of brings brings home some of that uh, cultural humility stuff as well, I think. Um, Absolutely. And, and not just thinking about sort of ethnicities and whatnot, but just the culture of the aging population versus the culture of little autistic kids, um, you know, is going to be quite different. So so what's some of the work you're doing? What's, what's, what kind of research are, are, are you putting out? Um, so we... A range of things, really. Um, what we're particularly interested in stimulus control thing. Um, we've been interested in looking at preferences, looking at how people might prefer their care to be delivered. So can we adapt preference assessments to be not just about items or about food items, but also about 
how you like your care delivered. Uh, so for example, when you enter a care home, often there's a document that is filled out where you uh, or your family members or both will write things about your preferences, things that you like and you don't. And so, for example, I'm a coffee drinker. I love my coffee. Um, I'm not a particularly big fan of tea. I will drink it occasionally, but it doesn't do much for me. Now, if I was to go into a care home, my family would probably write on my preference sheet that Rebecca drinks coffee. And what that might mean in, in practice is that I never get offered a choice ever again because it says on my preference sheet that Rebecca drinks coffee and so I'm always given a coffee um, mm. and that on the surface looks really lovely and person-centered and that you know the staff are following the preferences but what it doesn't do is give somebody a choice um, right. and we all sometimes fancy something different right um, and just because I have a preference for something doesn't mean that I dislike everything else and so we were looking at whether we could adapt a way of uh, having people choose whether they you know it's all very well to say so-and-so loves gardening, but do they love gardening if somebody does it alongside them and has a bit of social chit-chat? Do they want to be left alone just to garden by themselves? Or would they actually like some assistance gardening because maybe they have physical issues with their fingers now and actually they find it difficult to do some of the fine motor stuff and they much prefer the activity when they've got somebody that can do the nitty-gritty for them. Mm -hmm. Those are three very different ways of delivering that particular person's preferred activity. Uh, and so we, we looked at adapting a method that has been around for a long, long time. It's a little bit like an alternating treatments design, but instead of the interventions being offered uh, sequentially, they're offered simultaneously at all at the same time. Mm. Uh, and so you essentially what we had was three different people that were wearing different discriminative stimuli saying, you know, I'll do it this way, I'll do it this way, I'll do it this way. And we asked the person to choose which person they would like to go with to do the activity. And obviously we counterbalance the person so that we were assessing preference for the contingency rather than the person specifically. And it, to some degree, it was relatively fruitful, but we found all sorts of interesting kind of things that you just don't expect that make research so interesting. For example, hmm. the the wording on the written discriminative stimuli. Well, initially we didn't even use written discriminative stimuli. We actually had people wearing colored aprons, you know, like you might do in a functional analysis. So in a functional analysis right. to help discriminability, you might have different colored tablecloths on or whatever in conditions. And we did something very similar where we had people in three different colored aprons um, and the red apron represented this, the green apron, that, and so on and so forth. And we found that we didn't get, um, we didn't get discriminated uh, responding based on those particular stimuli. And so we added textual prompts instead or textual SDs instead that said, if you pick me, this is what will happen. Uh, but what was really interesting about that is that even though that seemed to facilitate for some people better discrimination uh, in what the contingencies were, the way that the the words were uh, or the, the sentences that we used um, affected somebody's understanding of, of what it was. So uh, we had one participant when they read the thing saying, if you pick me, I will talk to you. They interpreted that as if I pick that person, I have to talk to them. Mm. And so it became, it actually became, it was like the reverse contingency. And so there are all these like funky little things that we'd never thought of that cropped up. And then so there's, there is a little bit of research evidence, um, but not much. And certainly our findings are congruent with this, that textual prompts or textuals as a verbal operant might be preserved 
in people with dementia when other verbal operants disappear. So sometimes the verbal operants that you think might be the ones that are preserved the longest, like Amand, those can go first, not necessarily in everybody, um, but your kind of core verbal operants, your Amands and your Tats might disappear. And yet somebody might still have very complex intraverbals or textuals, which is fascinating. Uh, but again, it's, it's almost like, you know, if you, again, there's a Skinner idea that he talked about two types of research. There's programmatic research, which is, you know, you, you're like, I think I'm going to research X, Y, and Z because there's a hole in the literature. And then there's discovery research, which is when you are doing research and you find something unexpected or interesting. And so you pursue that and you sort of go down mm-hmm. the rabbit hole and you just go with the flow. <laughs> and actually the research um, that I've been lucky enough to, to be involved in has sort of been a little bit of both. It started off programmatic and, and sometimes becomes discovery research because we're like, huh, well, that's weird. Let's explore mm-hmm. that. How interesting. Uh, and we go down these amazing rabbit holes, which is really cool. So preference assessments, we've looked at experimental functional analyses and, and what some of the barriers to conducting those might be. Um, we sort of dabbled in a range of things, really, just because we go down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, and I, I don't know a lot about verbal behavior either. That's never been kind of my area. But the idea that you know, uh, you know, when, when we look at sort of the, the young kids with autism, we kind of start with manding and kind of work our way up to these kind of more complex operants. But then to say that sort of when dementia hits, you would expect the more complex ones to kind of fade away first. But you're sort of saying that some of those simpler ones were... were... They, yeah, they can. Do. And I think it, on some level, it's probably as simple as those simple ones don't necessarily get reinforced, right? Mm. So, so we know that... Um, you right. know, the research about care homes is that people spend a lot of time unengaged. You know, it's a big problem. You know, there's, there's a paper from probably about the 90s that showed that people spent 87% of their day doing nothing. 87%. I mean, that's just crackers, right? Wow. Right? Um, and so you can imagine why mans or tats might disappear. You know, if if your request for a conversation is met with, I'm so sorry, I'm, I've got to go and, you know, help so-and-so get out of bed. Mm. You know, I mean, those would very easily disappear out of your repertoire. And yet something like, how are you today? Good might be reinforced because it might be something that a staff member says in passing. So you've got a lovely totally. intraverbal there. And that, that, you know, that, that topography of intraverbal has been, probably been reinforced thousands of times throughout somebody's lifespan. I mean, how many times do people ask you how you are? You know, yeah, and, no. and it's almost automatic, right? When somebody says, how are you? I'm good, thanks. It's, it's like it just you just rattle it off. Um, and so those intraverbals might persist for that reason. I mean, I'm sort of waxing lyrical here a little bit. I, there's there's not an awful lot of research. There there are some, some lovely papers that have attempted to um, develop uh, assessments of verbal behavior uh, specifically for older adults. Um, yeah, and yeah, verbal yeah. Operants. But there's not, I mean, we certainly don't know anywhere near as much about verbal operants in older adults as we do in, in other populations. Uh, and it's fascinating stuff. Well, and it makes me think about, uh, I, I, I like your examples about how man, mans aren't reinforced because it also makes me think about how, this is probably stereotypical, but it's, it seems like a lot of folks with dementia are often manding for things that aren't available, you know? So they're manding for things like what I think, I, I think I may be, I think I even read one of these phrases in one of your papers um, uh, about, uh, one resident, you know, regularly asking when they were going to go home, when, when yeah. they're going to, when's my husband coming to pick me up or, or, you know, are, are we headed to the salon now? Or, you know, just sort of stand, you know, when's my son coming to visit or are you my son, you know? Um, yeah. And of course people don't know how to answer those questions. And so, yeah, they wouldn't get reinforced. Yeah, absolutely. Or they, people, 
will say something like, yeah, yeah, um, you, you know, your husband's coming later on this afternoon, but the husband's not coming this afternoon because he passed away 10 years ago. You know, and, and so the, I guess what some the, the verbal stuff doesn't necessarily match the stimulus conditions in some way. And, and mm-hmm. you can imagine why people, if you'll excuse a mentalism, are a bit confused. You know, it's um, it completely makes sense that, you know, we, we do see many people who, uh, you know, you'll go into a care home and there'll be, ladies sitting with their shoes on and their coat and carrying a handbag and they will sit like that all day because I guess the stimuli that used to occasion behavior that that was you're at home you need to take your coat off because this is your home you know because they aren't be able to discriminate those those stimuli in the environment they don't see that they're home you know there's a faulty stimulus control thing there and that you know there's a misconception about the environment and the environment in which they live and and we sort of see that with sometimes we work with people who themselves were in health professions uh nurses or um healthcare workers or occupational therapists or you know all of those health professions and so if you're in a care home and you see people in scrubs you think you're at work. Uh, and of course you think you're right. at work because yeah. you've spent most of your working adult life in those particular stimulus conditions. And so, you know, you might end up with interesting behaviors where that person might ask staff to engage in workplace behaviors. You know, they might give them instructions as, as the manager because mm-hmm. that's what they're used to doing. And that's what the stimuli in the environment tell them to do because, you know, that that's what their learning history is. Um, and again, there are, there's no other population with whom we work that you are yeah. dealing with these complex learning histories quite in the same way. And quite often, I suppose, because you're, you're not going to find, uh, you know, that Martha was a, an RN for 40 years in an assessment report or in a psychological report. So no. you're, you're not going to get that, you know, when we work with kids with, you know, with kids with developmental disabilities, we often get those those files to review that have, you know, all, all the different sorts of experiences in, in different sort of assessment units and whatnot. But, you know, staff aren't going to know that Martha was a nurse for 40 years. And so when Martha's, and maybe the head nurse for 40 years. And, and yeah. so when Martha's telling all the other nurses what to do and they're not listening and she's getting angry, they don't realize that she's, she's just responding to the stimuli in the environment. That's so wild. Wow. Yeah. I know. It's so interesting, isn't it? And, and of course, you know, when you think about attributions of behavior, you know, from a non-behavioral perspective, people will say things like, oh, well, Martha's engaging in that behavior because she has dementia. Mm-hmm. Not really, right? No, it's not the dementia that results in behavior, right? What the dementia does is it changes the way that Martha interacts with her environment and it changes mm-hmm. her ability to behave in accordance with the contingencies. Uh, and, and so people often miss out that middle bit, you know, dementia does not equal behavior. Dementia equals changes in how you interact and behavior is therefore reinforced in the environment, just like any other operant behavior is. And, uh, and so that can be a barrier in trying to explain to people why people engage in behaviors that on the surface look unusual. They look, you know, strange, you know, why is somebody doing that? Well, you know, from a behavioral perspective, it's contingencies, but the dementia itself is not the reason that somebody engages in behavior, right? Just just as much as if somebody has a brain injury, that doesn't cause behavior. It, it changes the way they interact with their environment, and those behaviors are still maintained by operant contingencies. So I really like the idea that you were looking. I mean, I don't like the I don't like this idea, but the idea that folks are spending eighty seven percent of their day doing nothing. So I really liked what this one study that you sent me uh, that you did in. Uh, in 2019 around lounge layout. Uh, That just seems like such a beautiful, simple 
cool intervention that made such a huge difference. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? That was a really, really interesting one in that it was just totally serendipitous. You know, talking about kind of opportunities. It was we were really lucky that we were doing some work on um, this unit for people uh, with dementia, and it was um, a place where people went for assessment and for some sort of intensive work and support. Uh, and one day, new furniture was bought, uh, and they sort of said to um, some trainees that were working, behavioural analytic trainees that were working on the ward, oh, can you guys arrange the furniture? And we kind of went, well, yeah, but where do we put it? <laughs> and how, you know, how, how should we arrange this, this lovely new furniture that you've got? Um, and my behavioural analyst brain kicked in and I went, why don't we do this based on data? <laughs> you know, let's get some data rather than making some guesses. Why don't we fiddle with it and, and see what produces changes in behaviour? Because what you tend to find in um, older adult services is common lounges are arranged with the, the the old, you know, all the chairs around the outside in a circle thing, mm. which makes a lot of sense with regard to mobility. If people are uh, wheelchair users or mm-hmm. if people are mm-hmm. using hoists, you know, that's great. But what that isn't conducive to is conversation. You know, if you think about your own lounge, how awkward is it? You know, you know, when you've got like a bunch of people over and you're all crammed onto the same couch uh, and you're having a conversation and you have this kind of awkward thing where you have to like turn your head and almost be, you know, nose to nose with the person next to you to have a conversation. Yeah. Yep. And it's weird and awkward. And actually what we found was that if you put the chairs like that around the outside, it sort of doesn't occasion communication and engagement and people interacting with each other. But hmm. when you when you put the furniture in a more social arrangement, you know, grouped around tables or with chairs facing each other, you get far more uh, communication and even engagement with activities. You know, we had the same activities available in all the conditions, regardless of where the furniture was, but simply the act of facing the chairs, you know, across from each other around a table and putting the activity in the middle of the table made it more likely for people to actually engage with the activity as well as communicate with each other. And it was it was just a, a cool way to show that you don't have to do these outrageously complicated behavioral interventions. Simply tinkering with the physical environment can produce, I mean, relatively modest changes in behavior. You know, we, we didn't suddenly get, you know, it wasn't like everybody suddenly talked to each other all the time, but certainly there was a, a considerable increase um, that, you know, then you could further assist if you train the staff to prompt communication, for example, or you, mm-hmm. you know, did something exciting with the activities or you know, there are ways that you can boost it, but it certainly boosted those levels of communication up from baseline, which was next to nothing. Um, and it was just as simple as that. It was just a great opportunity for a behavior analyst to do some tinkering. So cool. What are the, what are the chances you're going to have a bunch of uh, behavior analysis students in a room being asked to move furniture? Yeah, right. Oh, it's just sheer good luck. It was just amazing. There are two ways to look at it. I mean, I guess it's also a a nice lesson in humility, right? There are two ways to look at it. You can either go, it's not my job to move furniture around. I'm trained to be a behavioralist. Or you can go, what a cool opportunity. Let's use this. You know, let's use this to to get some great information about how we can help improve quality of life for these people. I mean, I think that that alone and, and that study alone is, I, I think it just can really, if folks are listening, it, it can really inspire you to really just sort of think about any environment you're in at any time, no matter what you're doing, whether you're helping your friend move or you're, whatever you're doing, you know, whatever scenario you're in, um, that if you turn on your behavior analytic brain for a second, you could really, you could really make a difference and hey, potentially even publish it. Right. I mean, exactly. I mean, I, 
I was chuffed to get that published because it was something that we just didn't plan to do. And, you know, and I think it's very congruent with the inductive approach of behavior analysis. You know, I, I consider myself like I'm a, I'm like a, an environmental tinkerer. Um, yeah. And, and it makes me laugh because sometimes when you're filling out applications for ethics uh, approval, it will say things like, what's your hypothesis? And I'm sort of the obnoxious person that writes, I don't know, that's why I'm doing it. Or, you know, what do you expect you to find <laughs> question? And I'll write, I don't know, that's why I'm doing it. And Because to some degree, that's how I see behavior analysis, both clinically and from a research perspective, is, is it's about what happens if we do this, poke, 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 poke. What happens if we do this, poke, poke. And that's cool, because what it also does is set us up to never be disappointed in our results, right? There's no such thing as bad data, because it's informative. If you don't get what you expect to get, that's not a problem, because you go, well, that's interesting. Let's work out, let's do some systematic uh, manipulation here to work out why we didn't get what we thought we were going to get. And let's see if we can do it a different way. Whereas if you do a more traditional psychological approach, which is, you know, I take a measure beforehand, I do my intervention, then I take a measure afterwards. If for whatever reason that intervention doesn't work, well, you've not only wasted that time with an intervention that doesn't work, which means that your client hasn't had meaningful behavior change, but you also didn't get any opportunity in your design to change things up when it didn't work. And, and so this idea of being like an environmental tinkerer, I think is one of the coolest things about behavior analysis. It's so fun. So cool. So cool. So I, don't, I don't think you were doing this study. I think this was someone else. But you, you mentioned kind of earlier in, in, in the podcast uh, about, and, and it's just, it just been stuck in my head, about we could actually do something about incontinence. Like I, I didn't think we – I thought incontinence was entirely like a physiological thing. You can just no longer – you know, hold urine in your bladder and so you just, or hold feces in your bowels and, and just at random times, you know, you just go and there was really nothing you could do about it. So, but it sounds like maybe that's not always the case. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a relatively old study now, but it's a cool one. Uh, it is no, 1970 something. And what's really cool about it is that um, my understanding is that not only did they improve continence, but they also, the intervention was actually implemented by spouses, um, which is a oh. you know, lovely example of, of getting carers involved because that's, I mean, that's a whole separate thing in working with So cool. Really, really neat. And, and it was as simple as prompt avoiding. You know, these were people who were incontinent and they put in a lovely, simple prompt avoiding procedure where they had carers check every, um, it, it varied based on participant, but, you know, uh, every hour or so to see if people were wet or dry uh, mm -hmm. and then prompted based on, on sort of working out just, just like you would if you were teaching continence in any other kind of behavior analytic setting. But I, I, I love the idea that you I guess that you don't write people off, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, you don't say, well, that's it now. And we also know that continence issues are one of one of the reasons, one of the factors that affects whether somebody goes into a residential home or not. Mm. Um, because continence issues, you know, if, if you think about the changing role of, of carers, you know, if somebody is your spouse and you've been with them for a number of years, your relationship changes very drastically when somebody somebody's behavioural repertoire changes drastically. And and if your role goes from being a spouse to being a carer and you're doing things like personal cares, you know that that's a, a whole other area of contextual work that again you might not necessarily have to think about working with. I guess particularly with children, or even with adults with ID that you know 
an adult with an IDD has always been a person with an IDD. And so the relationship they have with parents has always been, it's still a parental relationship. Whereas if you're working with somebody whose repertoire changes because they have dementia uh, and they're your parent, you know, your role goes from being child to to being carer or spouse to carer. And, and, uh, you know, from a behavioral analytic perspective, thinking about stuff that we don't quite have as much research on the soft skills, the clinical skills, the rapport building, empathy, um, however, you know, you might define those in a behavioral sense. It's almost like the context is so different, again, working with older adults, because you've got to be aware of that. You know, you're, you're, you're working with people who might be feeling like they've, they've lost, you know, a sense of loss or mm-hmm. their lives have changed, their relationships changed. And again, that's sort of not necessarily something that we've researched yet, you know, how we might adapt, how we work, how we make sure that we are still being socially valid and socially acceptable. It's so, so interesting. Anyway, sorry, that's mm-hmm. sort of a, a little bit down the rabbit hole away from the issue of continence. But, but I think, you know, continence is important to target because it probably does change somebody's relationship with their spouse. If you're having to do continence things with your, with your spouse, um, you know, it's not something that you have always had to do with that person. Um, but being able to reteach continence again, is fabulous. You know, it's, it's this idea that just because somebody has a diagnosis doesn't mean that we can't improve quality of life and change behavioral repertoires. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. Really, really cool. The third secret word is Oliver. A couple of other papers that you sent me were kind of related to more um, around kind of assessment and that we might need maybe different ways of doing assessment with uh, folks that have dementia versus other folks. Yeah. Can you touch on that a bit? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's the, the, in addition to the preference assessment work, um, we've also got a little bit of data around functional analyses, experimental functional analyses, um, mm. and how they, they might work. And of course, you know, the fu- experimental functional analyses are fabulous and they, they are the gold standard with regard to identifying function. And of course, they're the mm. only way to determine function with any certainty over and above, you know, um, indirect and, and, you know, straight observation methods. Mm-hmm. But what we find is that sometimes when you're working with somebody who's got a complex vocal verbal repertoire mm-hmm. and somebody who's got a long learning history, again, it's that context that makes things a little bit awkward. For example, if you think about the alone condition, it might be more socially appropriate for a young child to be ignored by an adult if they're busy, for example, right? So so kids learn that sometimes adults are not available because they're busy doing adulty things, right? You know, sure. when your kid approaches you, you don't always drop what you're doing and interact with them. When an older adult demands for your attention or asks you a question, it feels incredibly rude to put that on extinction, right? And and what we found is is quite uncomfortable uh, in that, you know, we worked with a participant who um, would say things like, why are you ignoring me? Have you done something wrong? Oh gosh, you know, this happens mm. all the time. I, you know, I upset people. It's me. I'm so silly. And it was quite uh. heartbreaking. It was awful. And so although from a kind of objective data-based perspective, the functional analysis produced results sure to run it felt horrid and, and not necessarily for all participants it very much varied based on participant and setting and so on and so forth and and so there might be a need here for us to adapt our assessments to be more socially acceptable or at least to reflect maybe more typical contingencies for older adults that still have very complex vocal verbal behavior 
and for whom, you know, for example, I'm 36 and, and it's, it's certainly, you know, I was brought up that I don't ignore people who are my grandparents' age. That's incredibly rude, right? That's so disrespectful. And, and it felt just wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And something that sort of hadn't thought about, to be honest, until, until we started doing it, I hadn't really thought it through. Uh, and then other sorts of things like, again, it's very difficult to get a room in a care home that is an empty room that you can run assessments that, you know, traditionally might be run in room and, and so participants would wander off into another room and you know, <laughs> I wouldn't blame them you know if you're in a room with somebody who's ignoring you and being incredible sure. uh, you know I'd disappear off too and they'd go and find someone yeah. else to talk to right um, and and that, then of course that does impede your data collection because you can't get a clean alone condition and perhaps there are other ways you know that obviously there are different ways of running experimental functional analyses you know you might run a pairwise or something where you don't necessarily have to use an alone condition but again, I think at the moment that's not what's reflected in our literature and that, you know, we, we think that maybe there's some capacity here to do some tweaking and fiddling with our assessments that are, you know, very familiar to us as behavioralists and that, that are very well established in the evidence base, but for other populations sure, uh, yeah. that just might need a little bit of tweaking. I mean, I don't think we need to necessarily reinvent the wheel because ultimately a functional relation is a functional relation and you need to, you know, find a way to get at the heart of what that is. But you do need to change the way it's it's conducted in practice. And even if you don't change the way in any you know grand way, it does certainly need to be built into people's training, right? Because what we don't want is a whole bunch of behavioural analysts who start working with older adults and essentially get themselves booted out of care homes because they come across as being rude or disrespectful. Totally, yeah. So were you able to find a, like another way? We did. We, we tinkered with conditional probabilities, which... Again, the disadvantage is that uh, it's a way of analyzing sort of within session data to see whether there is a there's a relationship, a strong relationship that there's a particular antecedent and a particular behavior that are related. Um, and they're really useful uh, in that they can produce some lovely data and they can give you some really detailed data within a session. Um, what you do is you operationally define obviously your behavior, but also environmental variables of interest. So it might be attention or it could be a demand or whatever it happens to be that you're interested in. And you measure both objectively. Uh, and then you look at whether they are related in time. So does a behavior occur? Is it more likely to occur if it's just been preceded by attention, for example, mm. compared to when you look at the probability of it just occurring at any time in the session, regardless of what precedes it or follows it. And so you compare right. the conditional probabilities with regard to like, it's it's about the chances of it co-occurring with another variable. And so you're looking for functional relations that way. And it's really useful. And we found that it, what it did is produced similar or, or the same conclusion that you would come to using an experimental functional analysis. So when an experimental functional analysis didn't work for one particular neither did the conditional probability analysis. Uh, when the functional analysis did come up with a function for somebody else, so did the conditional probability analysis. So you could perhaps argue that they're an alternative. The drawback is that they tend to be very complicated to do. We use software to do them rather than do them by hand. You can do them by hand, but it's laborious. And most behavior analysts, certainly clinical uh, clinicians or practitioners, are, are probably unlikely to have had any in-depth 
instruction on uh, conditional probabilities because they are complicated and they're kind of, you know, a nice extra to have. You know, they're not part of our mm -hmm. core behavior analytic toolkit with regard to data analysis. They're kind of like a, a cool bonus add-on. You perhaps could argue that they could they should be, but they are difficult to run. So so we did tinker with other other ways, but but certainly the problem is that finding an alternative to an experimental functional analysis is difficult because it really is the only way to get at a, a functional relation with any degree of of you know, objective data, you know, empirically demonstrating that functional relation. We got close. And I do want to argue that they should be uh, because, and, 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 and I know we, we sort of talked beforehand that uh, you used a software program to, to, to measure this, but that software program isn't, doesn't work in the, on the new computers. Doesn't, which is a shame. You can calculate them by hand, but obviously what you can calculate by hand is, is usually a less complex analysis than what you could do with the computer. And I'm sure mm -hmm. that there are other programs that, that do this just, um, beyond my, my limited programming skills, I think. but Sure, sure, sure. But it just makes me think about sort of, um, I think there was a stat at one point that, uh, and this, this may have changed with, you know, uh, with Hanley's um, practical functional analysis approach. But prior to that, I think the stat was, and I got this from a, a workshop that Brian Awada put on a few years back, and he said something like, 10 to 15% of behavior analysts actually conduct functional analysis on a regular basis. Um, like, like it was, a, it was a crazy low number. And, and then he kind of went on to sort of talk about, you know, how indirect assessments and descriptive assessments aren't, aren't, you know, useful for developing your hypotheses, but useless for actually coming up with a function. And we've seen lots of those QABF stat comparison studies and things like that. And so it surprises me that there, that there isn't more education and more talk about conditional probability analysis at, because it seems like it could be a, you know, a nice, uh, you know, alternative when, when FAs just either aren't feasible because of the environment or potentially harmful or unethical, like the example you gave. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that's not that's not happening more. Yeah, and what they do do as well, I think, is they give you a different type of data and that you can really zoom in and, and look at, at data at a, at a different level. You know, you there's um, a lovely paper, oh, I believe it is by uh, Tara... Fami, I'm sure that I'm mispronouncing her name, and I'm so so sorry if I am. I'm sorry. No, I, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Blame my Kiwi accent if I'm mispronouncing. Um, <laughs> that talks. And, and actually, Hanley might be the second author on that, perhaps from about 2008. And and what she argues for very strongly is uh, within session analyses. You know that that a lot of our data collection is across sessions. You know, we we do mm. session by session, right? And actually, sometimes within session analyses, if you do intensive and you look at actually the contingency within a data within a session that you can get as much information from that as you can from doing multiple sessions and so actually one argument could be experimental functional analyses with people with dementia might be a bit awkward but if you can get away with doing it once and look at your data within the session and that gives you enough information to determine your functional relation then maybe it's okay really cool you know, it's, it, as, as everything it's that kind of you know weighing up the risk of of harm versus you know the outcome and and you know all of those those clinical decision make, making things that we have to we have to do as a as a practitioner. Definitely going to find that one. It's so interesting that there's so, so many of these sort of little not little but un, unreplicated uh, you know studies out there that are finding all these really cool things, but then we just kind of go back to researching the same stuff over and over again and, and leave that stuff out. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> And then maybe just while we're on the topic of assessment, we could just touch on one more paper before we kind of think about wrapping things up. And that's this other one where you were looking at um, 
demand assessments. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah. Uh, so again, this was a a piece of research. It was it was a piece of discovery research again, where it came from a clinical need rather than something that we sought to do. You know, I didn't I didn't have an epiphany one day about demand assessments. It was. It was <laughs> It was. I wish I had. Uh, it was um, somebody with whom we were working, and and again, it was that stimulus control issue. You know, then that what we sort of notice anecdotally, and I've got no objective data. This is pure anecdote, but we find that actually, watch what happens in a care home or in a setting where older adults live. Very few demands are placed on people, and there's not really much appetite for people to be asked to do things, uh, which which is really interesting and, you know, is a complex thing to think about in and of itself. But, you know, people tend not to necessarily make their own meals, for example, or do their own laundry. It's done mm-hmm. by the staff. And so you're in an environment where demands aren't often placed. And so, you know, doing what you're asked to do, if, if it's necessary, might not be necessarily reinforced. But we, we worked with a lady who would... It seemed to find being asked to do things really aversive. And for the most part, we could avoid some of those things and it wasn't a big deal. But there was a, there were occasionally you might encounter a, a situation where a demand just has to be placed. For example, I need you to step aside because there's a medical emergency down the hall and I've got to get to that person quickly. Mm. Uh, and and if if that person refuses to step aside, then you know, or engages in in behaviour that might then become physically aggressive, you know, as somebody somebody might escalate their behaviour, then then actually you you've got a big problem here. Um, and so we thought that it might be helpful for the staff if we worked out whether it was something about the way that those demands were being presented. You know, again, thinking about people with learning histories, you know, I wouldn't go up to my grandfather and say get out of the way. That's rude, right? Mm. And he would very appropriately tell me where to go. But I might go up to him and say, excuse me, Granda, can you just, you know, scoot sideways for me, please? And and so we we looked at uh, adapting a demand assessment to vary the antecedent, you know, the way the demand was delivered to see mm. if there was a particular phrasing or a particular way that it was being presented that was kind of occasioning this behavior, which, which, you know, I think we ended up defining as rude behavior. It took all sorts of interesting topographies, but you, you essentially got an earful from this participant. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, any any sort of um, personal insults through to, you know, being told where to go in not so polite terms. And that could escalate to more problematic behavior, more dangerous behavior than that. But for the most part, it was verbal. And so we tinkered with things like, you know, what about if it's just a straight instruction, you know, just the behavior, step aside versus a rule, you know, I need to get down the hall, so could you please step aside or step out, uh, step aside, please, so you know, so that I can pass. You know, because a rule is is stating at least two of the three parts of the contingency. So we did a rule and instruction. We sort of embedded it in a bit of chit chat on either side, so a bit of whiffle waffle about the weather and or what people were wearing or what was on the telly or you know. Uh, who was winning um, Strictly Come Dancing or you know whatever it happened to be, and then with sure. the instruction embedded in it. And what we found was that when we phrased things as like a, as a request for help, that this lady was was much more likely to be like, yeah, no worries, sweet ass, I can do that, all good. And again, it was we think it was tied into the stimulus control thing where, uh, you know, we suspected that for her, she was at work. Uh, she wasn't a resident, she was actually at work. That's how she was reading the, the discriminatory stimuli in the environment. And uh, and we got some really very clear results that it was all about the phrasing, all about the phrasing. And what we did, we we did it with a preferred activity so that it was just so that we could work out whether it was 
we wanted to know whether it was the delivery as opposed to it being the right. activity itself, right? Yes. So we so we picked something that she she really loved. Um, you know, you can get those really cool adult coloring in books. Um, yes. She really enjoyed those. That was a preferred activity, and so we we used that uh, because we wanted to make sure it wasn't that the task was aversive, that it was the demand, the way the demand was phrased that was aversive, uh, and so it was hopefully a step towards maybe evaluating how we might adapt how we interact as a behavior analyst, you know, how we place mm-hmm. demands, how we um, ask people to do things, how we present information to people that might be perceived as appropriate or inappropriate. I guess it's essentially assessing social validity, um, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, of demand placement for that particular lady. Yeah. And we were really lucky to get that published, uh, which was fab because it wasn't, it wasn't really intended to be a piece of research. It was actually a piece of clinical work that, you know, we thought was so interesting. So we, we, um, we submitted it and it was published, which was fab. It's amazing. It's so amazing. You can't be like the first to ever do this. Like, have, have folks done this kind of work before? Like, this just seems like a, such a simple, brilliant, but simple sort of piece to look at that it's not maybe the, the activity they don't want to do. It's how you're asking me to do it. Well, that's a really good question. No, I would love to take credit for it. I'm sure somebody's done it. Sure. They must have done. I mean, certainly the demand assessment work is, is pretty well established. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In behavior analysis. But but I haven't really seen much of it with regard to older adults or people with dementia, um, which in some ways, again, it's kind of low-hanging fruit, I guess, in that you mm-hmm. know, if we think that it's about stimulus control, well, a demand is an antecedent, and antecedents are stimulus control. And, and so you know, maybe that's a, a really cool area that we should be looking into is, is, is all that. And rather than loaded on the consequence-based stuff, maybe we should have a look at the antecedent-based stuff in more detail. Um, totally. And certainly because the use of reinforcement can be quite awkward right in that you know if you think about things like praise you know praise is such a good tool in our toolkit for us as behavior analysts when we work with well definitely with kids i mean not everybody finds praise reinforcing of course and and you know for some people it's incredibly punishing for me it's incredibly reinforcing uh but you know it's it's very socially appropriate to praise a child or praise yeah. a child's behavior it is slightly less appropriate to praise again i wouldn't say to my grandfather Hey, Granda, good job on, you know, making your own toast today. He'd look at me like I'd gone bananas, you know, and, <laughs> and quite rightly so. So, we, uh, you know, there's some work there to be done around consequences. But, it, you know, if, if reinforcement is more difficult to work with with regard to older adults because of the social validity stuff, then maybe we should be focusing on the antecedent stuff. Absolutely. So much cool stuff. This has been so interesting. Kind of before we go, what what uh, what what are you working on these days? Like, what what's the latest project? Well, unfortunately, I imagine like a lot of us researchers, um, we've been scuppered by the pandemic, mm. so we are on hold at the moment um, with a lot of our, Suppose, our yeah. research. Yeah, but certainly some of the things I'm really interested in going forward um, is I'm quite interested in this translational stuff. Uh, you know, the, the stimulus control thing really excites me. I think it's so mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, and one of the other things that I'm quite interested in is why things work. And in, in that, you know, just like there are in, in other subfields, there are lots of different uh, interventions and offerings for older adults. You know, mm-hmm. not that long ago on the news, there was, you know, an example of some researchers that have come up with a, it's like a plush thing that's in the shape of a person that you can hug and it's designed for <laughs> dementia and and with my behavioral analytic brain I, I i go okay that's cool but what's the underlying behavioral mechanism why does that work and and often because it's they're not necessarily behavior analytic interventions they're not evaluated like we would 
evaluate mm-hmm. behavior analytic interventions. You know, the, the data that are collected tend to be self-report or they tend to be, you know, social acceptability or um, standardized measures rather than direct observations of behavior. So, you know, do these things actually change observable objective behavior? Do they change communication? Do they change engagement? Mm. Do they change indices of happiness? And if they do, what's the underlying mechanism? Is it simply environmental enrichment? Right. So, you know, if somebody's spending 87% of their day doing nothing, does it matter that it's a really expensive, really cool animatronic seal that bats its eyelids? Or would a a cheaper animatronic cat do the job? And does it need to be animatronic? Does it, you know, is it is it about the object or is it because when you've got that animatronic thing on your knee, it's actually a discriminative stimulus for staff to stop and talk to you, right? Because they'll mm. say, oh, that's interesting. What have you got there? Um, and so it's not right, actually yeah. about the object itself. It's not about that 3,000 pound animatronic whatever. It's about the fact that simply giving somebody an activity prompts staff behavior to interact with that person more. And that's why it changes quality of life. Um, so so it's it's I'm really interested in, in getting at the heart of the behavioral mechanisms responsible some of the things that aren't necessarily behavior analytic interventions, but could be evaluated really nicely from a behavior analytic perspective. Yeah, so interesting. Most of my work in the past has been in kind of the group home setting with, you know, where where there's been a lot of, you know, which which remind me of of these nursing homes that you're working in, where where you know the the activities are limited and the interaction is limited, and staff are busy doing everything for the individuals, and all of our interventions are looking at you know how can we get you know the actual residents more involved in their daily living things, and you know give them more things to do and engage them more, and so I, I kind of see a lot of parallels there in terms of you know you know looking for interventions because there, there seems to be these days, a limited amount of kind of group home research um, uh, compared to what they're kind of used to be in the past. So maybe kind of looking at some of the gerontology stuff, you know, could be kind of helpful. And it makes me think of, you know, your, your example of, of the, you know, animatronic cat sitting on their lap. It makes me think of sort of, you know, these interesting objects that some of these residents sort of latch onto and, and why they're doing it. And is it about the object or is it about sort of those interactions that it, you know, that they evoke? So yeah, it makes you, makes you think about a lot of those pieces. Really neat, really neat. Oh, it's so interesting. There's, I mean, there's, there's so many opportunities for research with older adults. There really, really are. And, you know, it'd be so cool if we could grow this subfield, you know, come join absolutely. us. It's fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have some students that are kind of doing this kind of work too, or are you supporting them in sort of other things? Um, a little bit both. I mean, a, again, we're sort of scuppered by the pandemic, really. Sure. Um, but previously, though. When, oh, previously, you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've um, been fortunate enough to supervise some PhD students that were doing some really cool work in this area um, and, and actually have published a lot of their work, uh, which mm-hmm. has been really, really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's how I guess how we help the field grow a little bit is is through you know, getting more people to do PhDs in this area and do, you know, research because, you know, in a PhD, certainly in a, a UK or a New Zealand based PhD, because they're, they're research PhDs mm-hmm. rather than taught PhDs. There's mm-hmm. a, a really lovely opportunity there to do quite an extensive program of research in the three years that you've got to do that PhD. Um, so that's a really lovely opportunity to get people involved. Wow. So awesome. Well, once a uh, pandemic clears up and you're finally allowed to go back into these places and work with these folks, I look forward to 
seeing what kind of what kind of stuff gets generated from you and your team. Super exciting. So yeah, super cool. Uh, it's just so interesting. Uh, I've been I've been wanting to talk about this stuff forever. Uh, I've always found it found it interesting. And kind of the last bit of work I did in group homes before I kind of kind of got out of it for a while was in group homes for seniors with IDD. So it was kind of a combination of kind of both areas. And so yeah, real just really really interesting stuff. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Really really neat. Really really fun to talk to you. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else you pump out and hopefully bringing you back maybe in a year or two. Oh cool. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. It's so exciting to be given an opportunity to talk about the stuff that's so exciting and fun and I'm really passionate about. So thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it.